The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Time for Even More Precision in Testing and Treatment of EGFR-Mutated Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, Refining and Expanding Best Practices in Advanced and Early-Stage Disease Settings. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash kpw860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. I'm really excited to uh, have this opportunity to talk about precision testing and treatment uh, for our patients with EGFR-mutated non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, and we have a, a great faculty lineup to, uh, to address this um, very exciting and evolving topic. So um, I'll briefly introduce myself. My name is Lynette Scholl. Uh, I'm a pathologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital just down the road from uh, Heinz Convention Center here in Boston. Uh, I'm also a, an associate professor of pathology at Harvard Medical School. Uh, and I'm joined today by Dr. Passiana, who is the director of the Lowe Center for Thoracic Oncology and of the Belfer Center for Applied Cancer Science at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, which is our partner uh, cancer center um, at, between the Brigham and, and the Dana-Farber. Uh, he is also the director of the Chen Huang Center for EGFR Mutant Lung Cancers and is uh, undoubtedly one of the world's experts on EGFR uh, biology and therapy for lung cancer patients, so we're really privileged to have him here with us today. Uh, he's also a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Um, and then we also have Dr. Lauren Ritterhouse. Uh, she is uh, an associate director at the Center for Integrated Diagnostics at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, and is also an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. Um, and with that, we will briefly review the agenda, and, and I'll give a very brief introduction to this session. Uh, we, we're going to break this out into three parts. Uh, we have two master classes, uh, one from Dr. Yana and one from Dr. Ritterhouse, talking about the importance of understanding really more granularity in terms of, of testing and, and therapy for our patients with uh, EGFR mutant lung cancers, as well as some practical approaches to testing. Um, and then I'll, I'll lead a, a conversation, uh, a practicum conversation, uh, where we can, we can walk through some cases that illustrate some of the, the complexities and nuances of, of EGFR mutation analysis today. So just to very briefly start off the conversation, I think we all recognize at this point the uh, really striking heterogeneity of lung cancers, um, and, and I think we can, we can really, to some extent, celebrate the fact that we understand these tumors so much better than we did a decade ago or two decades ago, um, and that's manifest in these types of pie charts that, that, are, um, that are illustrating the, the, the common oncogenic alterations, as well as some of the uncommon oncogenic changes that we find in our patients with lung cancer. Of course, today's focus is on EGFR, and it's a very important subset of our lung cancer population. Uh, in this country and in many Western countries, it's 15 to 20 percent of our patients with lung adenocarcinomas or other non-squamous, non-small cell carcinomas that will have an EGFR mutation. And these have traditionally been binned into those that are are sensitizing to uh, the, the original generation EGFR TKIs, uh, and then those that have been thought to be uh, confer intrinsic resistance to those types of TKIs, but we'll learn uh, now have uh, additional therapeutic options, and Dr. Yana will talk more about those in the coming slides. 
Um, at the same time, we recognize that I think despite the excitement around us understanding lung cancer better, uh, we're, we're still not doing a very good job of, of necessarily operationalizing testing in routine clinical care. Um, and there's several studies that have been published to date or have been presented to date that, that demonstrate that we really only get um, EGFR testing in somewhere between 70% um, and maybe 75% of our patients with, with lung <coughs> cancer. And then if you start looking at alterations in other genes that also have targetability, uh, those numbers often drop off even further. Um, there's a lot of uh, suggestions that we should be we should be pursuing next-generation sequencing-based technologies to uh, characterize our patients with lung cancer. Um, and, and you can see from this chart here, uh, under the My Lung Consortium data, that it's less than 40% of our patients who are getting routine NGS in, in some series. Um, and then if you look at this Flatiron database um, data that is shown here as well, and this is information that's derived from electronic health records, um, you again can see that the frequency of, of testing of molecular testing for patients with lung cancer is, is again, far less than we might like. It's maybe three-quarters um, of patients who ever get any testing, um, and a much smaller subset of those patients who are getting really the comprehensive testing that you'll see we need, particularly to pick up the more unusual um, EGFR mutations that have therapeutic implications. Um, and, and this is to, to get to, to that point further. So we're going to emphasize EGFR exon 20 insertion mutations as an important subset of EGFR mutations to detect. Um, and you can see that if you, if you apply many of the PCR-based assays that have been available historically, that we are um, only getting about 50% of the mutations that we could find if we were using alternative methodologies like next-generation sequencing. So it really argues for a need to advance the types of technologies we're using routinely for our patients with lung cancers. And uh, with that, we will move on to uh, the master class. And uh, I'm, again, very excited to um, introduce our first speaker, Dr. Passiana, who's going to be discussing why more granularity is needed in testing and treatment of EGFR-mutated non-small cell lung cancers. Dr. Yanni. Thank you, uh, uh, Dr. Scholl, and, and welcome, everybody. So uh, I wanted to go through some uh, data on EGFR-mutant lung cancer. And I think, first, it's important to sort of think about these in uh, different uh, buckets. And I like to think about EGFR-mutant cancers as having three major subtypes of EGFR mutations. The common EGFR mutations, which are the LA58R and the exon 19 deletion mutation, which make up about 85% of all EGFR mutations. And you can see on the bottom all of the drugs that have regulatory approval in that space. Then there are what sometimes are referred to as uncommon EGFR mutations, which are point mutations in different exons, exon 18 or exon 21, which make up about 8 to 10% and have a, a regulatory approval of a fatinib. And then, as Dr. Scholl mentioned, the exon 20 insertions which is the third subset and the, in, in the one where there's been a lot of effort to try to identify new therapies, about 5 to 7% of EGFR mutant lung cancers and two recent regulatory approvals of two new drugs specifically for this subset of patients. If you look here now and, and, and delve into more detail, uh, for example, on the, on the different subsets, you can, you can, you can see uh, that uh, they make up that, in fact, for example, the deletions and insertions have a lot of different uh, variations uh, with them uh, amongst, the different, uh, uh, amongst the different groupings uh, shown here. Now, 
Um, as Dr. Scholl mentioned, uh, there's been a lot of changes uh, in this space over the last uh, 15 to 20 years, uh, going back to the original discovery of EGFR mutations in 2004, and subsequently sort of identifying what's the best treatment strategy. Is it an EGFR inhibitor? Is it a chem is it chemotherapy? And ultimately sort of optimizing the use of the most effective EGFR inhibitor as the frontline therapy, and uh, now developing things like combination therapies and using EGFR inhibitors in earlier stages of lung cancer, not just for patients with advanced uh, non-small cell lung cancer. So uh, if we look at uh, the, the common EGFR mutant patients, thinking about the therapies, so this is for the exon 19 deletion and L858R patients. This is where osimertinib is the uh, 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 treatment of choice in the frontline setting. And it comes from the fact of, of, of multiple clinical studies, but namely this called the FLORA trial, where osimertinib was compared to prior generation EGFR inhibitors shown to be better in terms of both progression-free survival and overall survival. This is an EGFR inhibitor that was developed after the knowledge of EGFR mutations, originally developed for the resistance to prior generation inhibitors, but now used as a frontline therapy. In contrast, prior generation inhibitors were not developed specifically to inhibit EGFR mutations. They were found to be effective there, uh, and as such are less effective uh, compared to drugs like osimertinib. Uh, another recent approval of osimertinib is in the adjuvant setting, uh, and this uh, shows data from the ADORA clinical trial where given to patients with stages 2, uh, a, two to 3A disease or, or 1B to 3A disease, patients complete appropriate adjuvant therapy, which is typically chemotherapy, and then were randomized to uh, either osimertinib or placebo, and the trial was actually stopped early because of the efficacy, because of the substantial eff efficacy in reducing disease, uh, re reducing recurrence with an improvement in disease-free survival which led to regulatory approval of osimertinib in the United States and in many parts of the world. We don't know the impact of uh, what this has yet on overall survival, but given the magnitude of the benefit and disease-free survival, it's now starting to enter and being used in common clinical practice uh, for patients uh, with early-stage non-small cell lung cancer. And this is a kind of a, a different way of looking at the data based on the stages, and, 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 and as you appreciate in the placebo arm, uh, the higher the stage, the more likely someone is uh, uh, to recur. But you, even in the earliest stages, in stage 1B patients, there's still a significant benefit in reducing the likelihood of recurrence, uh, just that the baseline is lower because the chance of recurrence is lower, but that improvement is still there with osimertinib. So I, I think uh, <clears throat> as we're starting to implement and use this in the clinic, uh, these are important uh, features to uh, uh, consider. And as I mentioned, the regulatory approval was given uh, in uh, December of last year. Now, uh, let's delve deeper into the Exxon 20 uh, insertion uh, population. Uh, so as I mentioned, this is uh, somewhere in the 5 to 10 percent of EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer. Prior generation EGFR inhibitors uh, have not been particularly effective in this patient population. And it's a little bit of a confusing uh, area for, uh, for our colleagues uh, because uh, it is not one mutation. It is a range of mutations that happen uh, in a particular region. And even the nomenclature is sometimes quite confusing there. Uh, and, uh, and, and certainly from a therapeutic standpoint, uh, creates that uh, type of confusion. Um, and here's a, just another, uh, another way to look at it. If you look at it here on the right-hand side, uh, just to make the point that our prior generation drugs that we use for the more common EGFR mutations essentially have no activity. They're much worse against the exon 20 insertions shown there in uh, orange. Um, and that is true also clinically. Uh, they tend not to work, and which has led then to the development of more specific and tailored therapies for this uh, patient uh, population.
Now, the two agents that have regulatory approval in this space, <clears throat> one is called amivantamam, which is a, 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 a um, bispecific antibody that binds EGFR and MET. Uh, this is n by no means a specific exon 20 EGFR inhibitor, uh, but in the early clinical development of this antibody, it was recognized that it had activity in this patient population, partly because those patients had no other treatment options due to the lack of activity of prior generation drugs, so they entered this clinical trial. And Janssen, who makes this agent, uh, uh, was, uh, um, had enough foresight to run a, a complete clinical trial in this patient population, ultimately received regulatory approval. Uh, on the right-hand side is mobocertinib, or, or sometimes called TAC-788. This is a drug that was uh, sort of tailored from osimertinib to have more uh, uh, efficacy against uh, EGFR exon 20. So this is an oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor versus amivantamab, which is a uh, IV, uh, IV uh, uh, biospecific antibody. And just to show the data on the uh, <clears throat> on the agent, so this is amivantamab. This you can see the the the, the waterfall plot uh, on the on the right hand uh, sorry on the left hand side here. And and one question that often comes up in the in this and I think is still a uh, an area of uh, of active investigation is that does the location of one of these uh, exon 20 insertions make any difference to the efficacy of the agents? And so far, the answer is pretty much no, and you can see it summarized here on the left-hand side. Um, these two agents have very different side effect profiles. Uh, the amivantamab being an EGFR-directed antibody has a lot of skin toxicity as a side effect, whereas mobocertinib has GI toxicity as a side effect. And this is the data from mobocertinib. Again, responses are, for both of these agents, are less than 50%, so they range somewhere between 25 to 45%, and with the PFSs of 7.2 and, 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 and 7 to 8 months. Both are approved as second-line therapies for patients with lung cancer, whereas some of the prior whereas drugs like osimertinib, as I mentioned, is approved as initial therapy. And again, this is the regulatory approval. Both were approved this year. <clears throat> Now, probably uh, the thing that we spend the most time uh, thinking about and, and, and working on uh, both with our pathology colleagues as well as uh, on the medical oncology side is to try to understand what do we do for our patients who are actually successfully treated with an EGFR inhibitor when the drug uh, uh, stops working. And we have some general understanding of why drugs stop working in, in, in general, not just EGFR inhibitors, or kinase inhibitors that are used not just in lung cancer but other cancers. And there's sort of four major buckets that happen. So first of all, you can develop some kind of mutation in the target of where the drug binds, and, 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 and of course, then the drug becomes inactive. Uh, you can develop some kind of other pathway that sort of co-opts the, ne the need for EGFR inhibition. So you can have EGFR inhibition, but you have other pathways that uh, get activated through amplification or acquired rearrangements, such as MET amplification or acquired ALK rearrangements, that uh, basically feed into the downstream signaling. And despite EGFR inhibition, uh, these provide the necessary growth signals for the cancers. That can, of course, happen downstream in either the PI3 kinase or MAP kinase signaling pathway or, or through cell cycle alterations. And finally, this concept of state transformation, where uh, occasionally uh, EGFR mutant lung cancers transform into small cell lung cancer or into squamous cell lung cancer, and uh, are then often treated uh, based on the histology alone uh, for those uh, instances. <clears throat> so here, uh, when we uh, when this is a sort of a summary of acquired resistance to earlier generation EGFR inhibitors, where uh, this one sort of dominant mechanism of resistance that was uh, took place called the EGFR T790M mutation. This is why osimertinib was initially developed, uh, and it was very effective uh, in this particular patient population. And you can see other mechanisms uh, there as well. 
Now, uh, osimertinib resistance, again, in the frontline setting is much more complicated. Um, and uh, so here, uh, this is a, a paper from uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering where they looked at it in response to uh, when used as initial therapy or when used as later lines of therapy. And you can see sort of th three uh, or four major buckets. There are certain on-target mechanisms of resistance, so new mutations in EGFR. Uh, there are bypass signaling activation again, and then there's a state transformation. Uh, and then finally, this gray bucket, which is actually much larger in the frontline setting, where we have no nothing, or it's not that the cancer isn't resistant, it's just that we don't have a mechanism that we can put our finger on and just say, this is the reason the cancer is resistant, and this is what we would do uh, therapeutically. As an example of an individual who had adenocarcinoma that subsequently transformed uh, into squamous cell cancer uh, as, as an acquired mechanism of resistance. So how do we as medical oncologists uh, sort of think about this and why is this information so important? Well, I think there are a couple, a couple of uh, uh, features here. One is uh, uh, sort of from a clinical side, how we treat resistance based on is it a single site of resistance or multiple sites of resistance? And if it's a single site, we typically use things like surgery or radiation. If it's multiple sites of resistance, uh, we uh, tend to turn to systemic therapy. And when we have a targetable alteration where we have a drug, we either switch the drugs or add a second drug to osimertinib. Uh, and there are very nice uh, clinical examples, uh, and I'll show you some, uh, where this is turned into uh, an efficacious uh, treatment strategy. When we end up in that uh, gray bucket uh, where we don't have a clear mechanism of resistance, then we turn to things like mechanism agnostic strategies or to chemotherapy as a resistance mechanism uh, or as a resistance uh, uh, strategy to overcome resistance. <clears throat> This is an example of meta-amplification, so a fairly common uh, mechanism resistance to osimertinib uh, and to all EGFR inhibitors. And uh, what we typically do in, do in that situation is add a MET kinase inhibitor to an EGFR inhibitor. And you can see here in this waterfall plot that uh, you can definitely uh, have patients regain their response uh, after developing resistance to, uh, uh, to osimertinib. And this is an even rarer example. As, as I mentioned, you can get acquired rearrangements. This is an acquired RET fusion that can happen uh, in, a, in somebody treated with osimertinib. And in this situation, uh, the person was treated uh, with a combination of either selvercatinib and osimertinib or pralcetinib and osimertinib, both RET kinase inhibitors that have uh, regulatory approval. Now, I mentioned that uh, uh, amivantamab uh, agent that's been uh, uh, approved for exon 20 insertions. It's also used in the... Um, uh, resistance setting, and this is uh, data uh, showing that if you have a resistance to osimertinib that involves EGFR MET, you have a much greater degree of activity. Makes sense. It's an agent that inhibits EGFR and MET, versus if you don't, the activity tends to be a, a lot lower. So, again, evolving landscape of, of trying to sort of figure out and how to best treat uh, resistance. And this is a, an example of a, sort of what we call mechanism agnostic strategies. And this is using a, an agent uh, called patritumab derixtecan, which is an anti-HER3 antibody, con antibody drug conjugate. And HER3 is an ERBI family member that's essentially universally expressed on EGFR mutant cancers. However, it is not a known resistance mechanism to EGFR inhibitors. And here, uh, we're using it as a, essentially a way to deliver a cytotoxic agent specifically into cancer cells. So the antibody drug conjugate conjugate binds, uh, HER3 gets internalized, and then the the, in the lysosome, the toxin, which is a topoisomerase-based inhibitor, gets released and selectively uh, treated, uh, delivered into cancer cells. 
And the beauty of this is that it doesn't matter what the resistance mechanism is to the EGFR inhibitor. It, it doesn't, HER3 is not involved in that. And so in this, this data set, you can see that there is activity uh, of this agent, whether or not you have complex resistance mechanisms or whether you have just the original EGFR mutation, like in that gray bucket where you couldn't identify uh, a resistance mechanism. And, and the development of this is ongoing, both post-OSI and, and uh, uh, in combination with first-line osimertinib. All right, thank you. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Yana, for that um, terrific talk. Um, we are going to move on to our second master class. Um, and this is uh, coming from Dr. Lauren Ritterhouse uh, with a pathologist's perspective on what, when, and how of testing for common and less common EGFR mutations in non-small cell lung cancer. Dr. Ritterhouse. Right, so what are our current priorities today for lung cancer specimens as pathologists? Not only do we need to establish a malignancy diagnosis and classify the tumor appropriately, but now one of our main responsibilities is maintaining adequate material for ancillary and molecular testing. So we're really the key people here serving as the tissue stewards um, for our patients. Um, and how is the data that Dr. Yana just showed of the ADORA trial changing things for pathologists? So not only do we have to think about preserving tissue um, on our patients with advanced stage disease, and these are often in the form of biopsy specimens, but now we have to think about testing on resection specimens as well for those folks that have early stage 1B to 3A disease. Um, and for right now, that's just EGFR testing, usually looking for the more common um, mutations of EGFR. So thinking about strategies to make sure this is getting done, um, you know, having multidisciplinary conversations about perhaps initiating reflex testing at your institution. Um, and so this is a new kind of uh, ca whole category of patients that we have to think about um, ensuring that we're serving as the good tissue stewards. So what to test? FFPE specimens are the most common currency um, in both <coughs> surgical pathology as well as in molecular diagnostic laboratories. So most, most tests um, will be able to um, perform well off of FFPE specimens. But what about cytology specimens? So that's something I want to um, talk about. So when we're thinking about what's the best specimen for molecular testing, uh, there's several different factors that we have to take into consideration. One is just the amount of tissue or tumor available, um, how much tissue is there, how much tissue is left in the block, how many slides do we have. But also I think it's important to remember the tumor purity, and this is really important for the limit of detection of whatever particular assay or test that you're wanting to perform on. So, thinking about how many non-tumor nuclei are present, right? So sometimes you might have you know, a large um, tissue specimen, but perhaps the tumor purity is quite low, and so maybe a cytology specimen might be a better option because it has a higher tumor purity. So if you think back to 2013, at the time the expert consensus opinion <clears throat> was that for the use of cytology samples for EGFR and ALK testing, um, cell blocks were the preferred specimen over other cytology preparations. But now guidelines say um, that you can use either cell blocks or other cytologic preparations for um, biomarker molecular testing in lung cancer. And I just want to highlight here that it's really important to communicate with your laboratory of choice, whether that's in-house or, or a send-out for your molecular testing, 
what specimen types or cytologic preparations they have validated for that particular test. Um, because just because there is data suggesting that perhaps a direct smear works well in molecular testing, you have to make sure that that's um, acceptable on that particular test in that particular laboratory. And perhaps if, if they don't have any cytology specimens um, validated, maybe that's a good opportunity for a collaboration for helping them um, add on new specimen types to be validated. So what cytology specimens can work for molecular testing? Um, I think cell blocks, as already mentioned, have been, are used by most laboratories. They're very easy to process, very similar to what we do with our FFPE blocks in, in core biopsies. But also direct smears work quite well. You know, these aren't fixed. You can sometimes get really amazing nucleic acids um, out of direct smears, whether they're stained or unstained. Um, and then, of course, molecular testing can be done off of liquid-based cytology as well. So I just wanted to give one brief example of, of kind of just the dramatic effect that multidisciplinary collaboration um, and optimizing workflows and using cytology specimens can have on our ability to get adequate samples for molecular testing for our lung cancer patients. So when I was at the University of Chicago, we did an initiative to kind of improve our adequacy rates from endobronchial ultrasound FNA procedures. Um, and so we worked with an on, our on-site cytopathologist to judge adequacy at the time, not just for diagnostic purposes, but also to judge adequacy for molecular testing. And then we saw that after we did this, our inadequacy rates for this particular procedure went from around 30% to less than 5%. So this was really successful quality improvement initiative. And it also improved turnaround time, because now those, those direct smears went straight to the molecular laboratory and didn't have to go through histology and be embedded and cut, et cetera. So this is just one example of thinking about our ways we can use cytology specimens. And as our roles in being good tissue stewards, I wanted to highlight two best practices for really just maximizing the potential we can get out of both small biopsy specimens for lung cancer. Um, there's many of these, but two I think are quite helpful. One of which is if you have multiple core biopsies, to embed each core biopsy in a different tissue block. Um, that way, if one of the tissue blocks becomes exhausted, that you might have an option in, in another tissue block that can be used for molecular testing. And the other one would be for upfront sectioning. Um, as we all know, every time you recut a block, you have to reface into it and you lose valuable tissue. So it can be quite helpful, particularly in biopsies of, of lung cancer specimens, to just cut all the sections that you think you might be needing up front at a single time. So your slides for your H&Es and any IHC that's needed and for molecular testing. And that way we can preserve precious tissue um, that might be lost from recutting into the block over and over. So now that we've talked about what specimens to test, um, what kind of tests do we need to be performing today to pick up all of our, all of our biomarkers and in particular our EGFR mutations? So most of the guidelines, including NCCN, recommend broad molecular profiling. So this is usually in the form of NGS panels. And so as you can, Dr. Yena showed, the range of mutations possible in just EGFR alone are very complex. Um, and so a comprehensive genomic profiling assay is really the best way for detecting the less common variants and some sort of in complex insertion deletion mutations, all in just a single assay. However, there are also PCR-based tests, and so these are really good at detecting the more common variants. Um, and then some of the PCR-based tests might have slightly expanded coverage, but aren't going to be able to detect 100% of the EGFR alterations. And this, of course, has the advantage of having a faster turnaround time. 
So in thinking about some of the rapid testing platforms, so we really, you know, I think our clinicians really need a certain number of biomarkers before they start treating the patient, and so they're waiting um, for our results. So what are some of the rapid testing options for EGFR? And there's several different ones on the market, and they differ in the target complexity, target coverage and complexity, uh, one of which is droplet digital PCR, which has some limited multiplexing but can detect the common EGFR alterations. And it has a turnaround time of a few days, much quicker than you know, a comprehensive genomic profile, which can take a couple weeks. The biocardicidilla is another option. It has slightly expanded coverage. It can pick up some of the exon 20 insertions, but probably not all of them. Um, and this is a really rapid test. It, it, the actual runtime is only an hour and a half um, with limited hands-on time from the text. So this is a great rapid testing option. And there's more kind of complete comprehensive solutions, such as the Genexus platform from Ion Torrent that's um, a rapid targeted hotspot NGS panel, and it has a turnaround time of 18 hours, and this is also a very hands-off end-to-end solution. So when thinking about trying to, how do we balance this? How do we balance getting a rapid turnaround time so our oncology colleagues can start treating the patient? but with making sure we're having very comprehensive testing and picking up all the alterations that we need to. Um, one of the options is to employ a parallel testing strategy. So a lab receives um, a specimen, and you reserve some of the sections for rapid testing of a select set of biomarkers, and then reserve more sections for comprehensive genomic profiling. And both of these can be started in parallel. So that way, you might have your EGFR-PCR result in the manner of a few days. Um, and perhaps if nothing is detected in that, then you can wait for your comprehensive genomic profiling <clears throat> result, which might take another week or so. Um, and in this case, you know, maybe that's where you pick up your more rare or your exon 20 insertion. So doing this requires careful use of technology, fine-tuned workflows, and multidisciplinary collaboration and communication. Um, but it's been shown that rapid EGFR mutation screening followed by NGS can be quite successful with over a 90% success rate um, if managed appropriately. So what, is, what are some of the pros of broad adoption of using NGS? It's a really highly attractive technology for a lot of reasons. Um, it allows optimal tissue management and actually cost containment. While a single NGS assay might be more expensive than a single gene PCR-based test, when you start looking at all the biomarkers that we have to identify, um, that price adds up, that tissue um, usage adds up, and so this can actually be a very streamlined approach for looking at both common and rare alterations um, and looking for FDA-approved targets and also potentially targets that might make someone eligible for a clinical trial. And of course, the biggest negative is, is the turnaround time, right? It takes, takes longer to get these results, um, and it has a little bit higher tissue requirement. Perhaps if you have a very scant specimen, you might not be able to, to adequately perform NGS. All right, so now for thinking, should we be doing tissue testing, which is what I've mainly been talking about thus far, um, plasma or liquid biopsy testing, or both? Um, and so the advantages of doing a plasma-based test are quite obvious, right? All these things I've been talking about, um, the difficulties with obtaining adequate specimens and tracking down the block, um, that's all totally circumvented. Um, a patient's in the clinic, you can do a simple blood draw and send it off. So, so that obviously has a, has a great advantage as far as speed and ease. And so just to remind everyone, circulating tumor DNA testing, that's where we look at the plasma for DNA that the tumor cells have shed into the bloodstream. And so we can do the very similar technologies that we do on tissue, we can do on circulating tumor DNA. We can do PCR-based tests or next-generation sequencing. 
So just kind of comparing tissue genotyping with plasma circulating tumor DNA genotyping, um, I think the biggest difference is kind of the ease and speed that you can get a specimen ready to, to get results. Um, the actual technology takes the same amount of time. It's really just kind of that pre-analytic stage that's much faster. I think one of the biggest differences is the clinical sensitivity of the test. So it's lower for plasma ctDNA, not the technical sensitivity of the assay, but just the ability to detect mutations because it's dependent on how much DNA that the tumor is shedding into the blood, right? What is the fraction of cell-free DNA that's coming from the tumor? And the problem with that is we have no way of assessing that um, a priori. So whereas a tissue, we can look down the scope and we can see, oh, there's 50% tumor cells or so on the slide. We, we can't really do that with, with a plasma circulating tumor DNA assay. So how about its use in practice? You know, this is a really ideal test for patients for whom the tissue biopsy is inadequate <clears throat> or you're not able to get a biopsy or re-biopsy. Um, this test fills a huge clinical gap that we have in those settings because it's really critically important to have some of these biomarkers before our oncologists start treatment. Um, but in practice, I think many of our clinicians order ctDNA testing at the same time as either placing an order for a biopsy or ordering tissue genotyping. And so sometimes those results might come back even before we get, get the results, um, even before we get the tissue back. One thing I wanted to highlight for interpreting ctDNA results um, is that if you find a driver alteration, that's incredibly informative and actionable. However, if you don't find a driver alteration, then that's a very uninformative result, and tissue genotyping really needs to be pursued if possible. And so I think ultimately circulating tumor DNA and <coughs> tissue testing are quite complementary to each other. And so what are the bottom lines for the pathologists? So we need to be testing all of our advanced non-small cell lung cancer patients, ideally with comprehensive genomic profiling. And it's great if you can think about doing a parallel rapid testing strategy as well to get these really important common biomarkers um, to our oncologists as soon as possible. And this is a complex system, um, and we need to have a plan that requires you know, frequent and ongoing um, communication with our oncology colleagues. And again, just remembering our role as being um, good tissue stewards for our patients. And so this is a really great opportunity for pathologists to be advocates for our patients by integrating the testing results and really understanding the methodologies that should be used, um, identifying potential gaps in testing methodology. So perhaps someone you realize has only had a PCR-based test and there was no driver alteration found, and you know, this is an opportunity to realize that maybe perhaps they need to have a more comprehensive test. And just remembering that we're really critical members of the multidisciplinary team. Um, so let's start out with um, an early stage example uh, of a patient with lung cancer. This is a 58-year-old gentleman actually getting a clinical workup for an uh, unrelated um, finding who has a chest CT and is found to have a right upper lobe mass. Importantly, he uh, is, is a non-smoker, um, and despite um, you know, no really clear uh, evidence that he would be at risk for having a, a lung cancer, the radiographic findings are worrisome for malignancy, and so they, they actually proceed right away uh, with a, a diagnostic and hopefully curative pulmonary wedge resection. 
Um, and so I'll show you the pathology for this patient. And so there's a low power view. Uh, you can see that this is a peripheral mass. Um, you can probably even perceive at low power that it appears to be invading into the pleura and um, higher magnification. <coughs> Evaluation of the tumor did in fact confirm uh, invasion of the pleural elastic layer. Um, and then the, the histologic subtypes that we, that we observed at higher power included both solid and micropapillary patterns of disease, both of which are considered high-grade forms of lung adenocarcinoma. Um, and then what you can see on the, on the right-hand side is a very extensive lymphovascular invasion in this case, and it was observed not, really, not just immediately adjacent to the tumor, but actually in the parenchyma quite distant from the tumor as well. So another quite worrisome feature in addition to areas of spread of tumor through air spaces. So a number of negative prognostic features seen in this individual's tumor. Uh, now, when it was written up, it was uh, uh, called a lung adeno with solid uh, predominant histology and micropapillary features, actually only one centimeter in greatest diameter. It did have pleural invasion, that extensive LVI I showed you. Uh, there was uh, maybe a somewhat limited cervical uh, uh, mediastinal lymph node sampling, including of, of levels 4R and 10 lymph nodes, a total of three lymph nodes that were examined. Um, ultimately, given a, a pathologic stage of uh, PT2AN0, and that falls into the stage group uh, 1B. Um, and so we'll put up the, the questions, but before we actually uh, answer those questions, I wanted to put this forth to Dr. Yana to maybe talk about his, his, his thoughts about a patient. Again, clinical stage 1B, never smoker, uh, lung adenocarcinoma with some adverse features. What, what are you thinking, and what kind of information would you like next? Well, I, I think there are a couple of decision points here. One is uh, the question of, is this an individual that you would give adjuvant chemotherapy to? Um, stage 1B patients are sort of uh, on the cusp of whether one uh, considers chemotherapy. Often it's the quote-unquote big stage 1B patients by the old staging classification that greater than 4 centimeter who we would consider adjuvant chemotherapy to based on retrospective look at the adjuvant chemotherapy trials showing that there was a benefit. I think in this situation where it's based on plural invasion, uh, it's more of a discussion with the individual. Um, how, whether or not to do chemotherapy. I think the next piece of uh, information that one would be looking for, especially in a never smoker, would be whether or not there's an EGFR mutation. Thank you. And, and Dr. Ritterhouse, what, what is your strategy? You know, you, you get this type of uh, case, uh, resected lung adenocarcinoma in practice. What, what does the pathologist do? Uh, do you have a reflexive protocol in place in this type of setting? Yeah, with, with these new approvals of these therapies in early stage cancer, we have instituted just in the past year at our institution reflex testing for on these resection specimens just for a targeted EGFR assay looking for the most common EGFR alterations. That was kind of our multidisciplinary conclusion of the, of the most efficient way to get this result. Yeah, and we have a similar strategy, and, and we, we happen to run the droplet digital PCR uh, approach that just picks up the uh, exon 19 deletions as well as the L858R mutations. But if you look at the um, approval for osimertinib in this setting, those are the specific mutations that, that it's relevant to. So uh, in this particular narrow context, we actually don't need to be looking much further than that. And did you have any conversations about performing more, more comprehensive profiling in this setting at your institution? 
Um, I don't, not at this time. I think, um, I think in general, if you ask our clinical colleagues, they want all the testing on all the specimens, right? But, um, <laughs> which I think we would love to be able to give that information as well. But as far as from, you know, just a kind of a cost containment and, and resource management, I think most people agree this was reasonable to do for now, at least. Um, so just to uh, wrap up this particular case, um, again, EGFR mutation analysis is indicated in patients with resected stage 1B through 3A lung adenocarcinomas. Uh, as Dr. Yana um, alluded to, it's possible in that early stage 1B setting that there may be more of a conversation about appropriate therapy. Uh, there is data from the ADAR trial and now, uh, of course, an approval for use of adjuvant osimertinib therapy in this setting because it leads to a significant disease-free survival benefit. Um, in terms of testing, as we just discussed, more directed testing of the most common sensitizing EGFR mutations is probably the most cost-effective and clinically relevant. I would also say that, you know, in our conversations with our finance and compliance uh, uh, officers at our own institution, these, these patients are typically considered inpatients, of course, when they're getting their, um, their thoracic surgery. Um, and as you're, as you're aware, for those of you who practice in the United States, we have uh, challenges around actually um, sending out uh, individual bills for molecular testing in patients who are inpatients or two weeks from the time of their inpatient stay, the so-called 14-day rule. So in terms of thinking about whether or not we're going to get paid for this type of testing, the more expensive tests, such as the comprehensive genomic profiling approaches, may be a little bit more cost prohibitive for your institution if you're ultimately going to be bundling the cost of this type of testing into your inpatient, um, inpatient reimbursement. Um, and also, of course, as we discussed, there's really less immediate clinical utility of comprehensive genomic profiling in this setting right now outside of the realm of clinical trials. Um, and then finally, just to reiterate what Dr. Ritterhouse mentioned earlier, the sensitivity of currently available uh, commercial cell-free DNA tests is, is lower in the early stage setting, so it's less likely to be informative in a patient like this than is tissue testing. Okay, so case number two is a 69-year-old gentleman, also a never smoker, who presents with chest pain and shortness of breath, a little bit of a different clinical scenario than our last patient. Uh, he has imaging that shows a pleural effusion, uh, and he also undergoes staging imaging, which shows pet avidity in a left upper lobe mass, as well as uh, in numerous mediastinal lymph nodes. He had a pleural uh, uh, effusion that was tapped. Uh, the cytology was called atypical, and they couldn't go any further than that on, on that sample. So then he underwent a CT-guided core biopsy of his lung mass. <clears throat> and I think even from this power, I'm not sure if you can see from there, but even at this power, you can see it's, it's really a very solid growth pattern tumor. And around this uh, vessel here, it looks like there's probably some adventitial lymphatics or something that are filled with, with tumor. So it looks like we can even see lymphovascular invasion on this core biopsy. So some adverse pathologic features that match the relatively aggressive presentation uh, clinically. Um, you can see, I think, an interesting morphology in this particular case. Again, it's a, it's a pretty high-grade tumor, and it actually has both a component of adenocarcinoma morphology, solid growth pattern with some signet ring cells there in the center of the field on the left. And actually, there were other areas that showed a suggestion of squamous morphology. Uh, a P40 was applied in this case and did show multifocal staining. So um, on a small biopsy like this, we would say non-small cell uh, lung carcinoma uh, favor uh, with, with both adenocarcinoma and squamous features favor an adenosquamous carcinoma. And 
Uh, he actually underwent uh, circulating cell-free DNA testing, and that showed an EGFR L858R sensitizing mutation at 13% variant allele fraction in the plasma. And, and actually, I'll just turn it over to Dr. Yana to, to just talk about how he looks at that type of, of result and, and what does that tell, tell you about the, the patient's disease. Well, I, th I think with that, uh, that kind of result and that kind of uh, uh, VAF, uh, this is a you know, coming from the patient's tumor, um, this is a, a, I would be, feel highly comfortable in treating the individual based on that result alone. Thanks. And then uh, I will jump right to the, the chase here. He, he did start on osimertinib therapy, um, which would be indicated, but he unfortunately actually progressed. He had symptomatic progression even after just a month, uh, and they rescanned him and showed that the, the lung mass had actually grown in, in size. Um, so I guess the question is, what, what are you thinking about now in this setting? What, what, what's the sort of scenario in which you might see this happen? So uh, sort of primary progression, uh, meaning uh, somebody is, when you do their first scan, they show progression as opposed to stable disease with uh, osimertinib is, is actually pretty uncommon. It's usually less than 5%. And I think here one would wonder, is there some kind of pre-existing resistance mechanism or something unusual about this cancer, and would probably want more information as that may be helpful for uh, guiding the treatment. And do you have any thoughts on uh, adenosquamous versus adenocarcinoma versus squamous carcinoma type of morphology? Is there any data on whether there's uh, differential response rates when you see these, these differences at the, at the time of diagnosis? Not, not that I'm aware of, not, not, okay. not like comprehensively studied. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what happened in this case. So we actually went back to the original diagnostic biopsy, keeping in mind that he progressed really very quickly um, on therapy, again, looking like he's <clears throat> got a primary resistance to uh, osimertinib. And uh, I'll show you, first of all, you can see there's uh, the, that same L858R mutation is detected in the tissue, again, at a really very high variant allele fraction, detected in 73% of the reads. Um, and you can see here on the copy number plot that there's a couple of areas that are highlighted in green. So the pink and golds are the areas of the genome that are pretty close to a normal diploid state, and you can see a few areas that are highlighted. So I'm going to zoom in on chromosome 7 and actually show you that we have co-amplification of EGFR as well as of MET. Um, and it looks like the EGFR mutation uh, amplification is really quite striking and probably helps to uh, explain why the, uh, the variant allele fraction of the L858R mutation was as high as it was. There's likely some selective amplification of that mutated allele. Um, and then also you can see that there is uh, a, a, a focused gain of MET, and this was confirmed by FISH, uh, as you can see over here on the right. So I, I think here's an example where we are observing uh, de novo MET amplification, uh, likely explaining primary resistance to this uh, patient's osimertinib therapy and his tumor. Um, and you know, outside of the primary resistance setting, which again, is, as we already discussed, is relatively unusual but <coughs> is observed, uh, we see uh, resistance to osimertinib really inevitably developing in, in all of our patients getting this therapy. Um, of patients who do develop resistance, somewhere between 7 and 15% of them develop it as a result of MET amplification. 
Um, and then, you know, just to sort of speak to the histologic transformation, this particular <coughs> case of individual had a somewhat unusual uh, morphology from the outset, and I personally wonder if that could be contributing to some extent to his relatively relative lack of of, of response. Uh, but you can see histologic transformation, including to squamous cell carcinoma or small cell carcinoma, in up to 20% of patients being treated with osimertinib. Um, and as, as Dr. Yana already alluded to, there are a number of approaches to combining inhibition uh, against EGFR and MET, which have shown promise in, uh, in clinical trials. Um, and then finally, in terms of testing, I think in these scenarios, there are probably a, a di different approaches that could be taken. Um, for one, there is certainly a significant usage of circulating cell-free testing at the time of resistance, and, and coupling that with tissue testing can be, uh, can be quite informative because of the heterogeneity of resistance mechanisms. Um, one, one area that I, I find interesting is just trying to understand the reliability of copy number alteration detection in liquid biopsy. I think that it's still somewhat early in the technology or the available commercial technology for um, sort of universally reliable detection of these types of copy numbers in cell-free DNA testing. So again, a place where having kind of complementary approaches to resistance profiling can be helpful. And then finally, our last case is of a 71-year-old woman with a light smoking history who presents with a cough. Uh, and she has a CT scan showing a, a 4.7-centimeter left lower lobe lung mass. That's uh, highly pet-avid. <coughs> and she undergoes a cervical mediastinoscopy staging procedure, which is negative for metastatic disease. Undergoes a lobectomy, which is signed out as an R0, PT2B, N0 adenocarcinoma with acinar and micropapillary patterns. And because of the large size of this tumor, she undergoes adjuvant chemotherapy. Unfortunately, about a year and a half later, she has a follow-up CT scan that shows new pulmonary nodules, which are relatively subtle, but you can see them uh, here on this imaging. And that was uh, radiographically consistent with metastatic disease. Tumor genotyping was requested in this case. She had ALK and ROS1 negative results, uh, as well as rapid EGFR testing for the sensitizing mutations in uh, L858R and exon 19 del that were negative. Um, and then NGS was performed in this case. And we detected um, this. Um, this is uh, either an insertion or a duplication uh, event, depending on the, the nature of the, uh, the nucleotides that have been inserted. Um, and you can see that our original annotation of this from our own internal pipeline was of an insertion mutation at this position, 766-767, in exon 20 of EGFR. Um, but this is really kind of a, an important side aside on nomenclature in this space, uh, because if you read the nomenclature uh, guidelines that are put forth by the HGVS, um, this type of alteration uh, in this particular setting, even though it's called an insertion, it actually should be called a duplication, and it actually somewhat changes the, um, the nomenclature from uh, M766 a767 insertion to an A767 V769 duplication. So I think, you know, we may not think a, a lot about that as we're signing these cases out in the molecular lab, but it can have significant implications in terms of the confusion that it creates for a clinician who maybe sees a report on a patient's 
primary diagnosis called one way and then maybe at relapse called a different way and actually wondering if this patient has the same variant or not in those two phases of their disease. Um, so important just to keep on top of what the nomenclature is uh, so that we see consistency across reporting. Um, and so uh, put up our poll question, but then I'll, I'll go ahead over to um, Dr. Yane again and ask this patient has uh, one of the characteristic exon 20 insertion or duplication mutations more, more appropriately. What is your practice right now uh, for her that she's got advancing disease in terms of systemic therapy? Well, this, this would be somebody potentially to be considered for uh, one of the new agents that was approved, either amivantamab or mobicertinib. Um, they, uh, as I showed, have efficacy uh, in patients with exon 20 insertions. They're technically approved in the second-line setting, um, and so since this patient had adjuvant chemotherapy a while ago, the question would be, would you first give chemotherapy and then one of these agents? But at some point in her treatment course, uh, she would receive one of these new agents. There are also many, many, many in uh, clinical trials uh, in this space as well. Uh, and so just to wrap up this case, um, again, just a reminder that focused tumor genotyping is often inadequate for detection of many targetable alterations in advanced lung adenocarcinoma, including our EGFR exon 20 mutations, and we now have two drugs that are approved in this setting, so it's important to identify these alterations. Um, also a reminder from the <coughs> laboratory side that um, while some targeted genotyping panels may cover EGFR exon 20 mutations, they often do not capture the full spectrum, and keeping in mind that the nomenclature matters uh, for our clinical colleagues for these types of complex insertion or, or duplication alterations. Um, and with that, that really is the end of our, of our formal content. We do have a number of great questions that have come in from the audience, um, and I know we're close to the hour, but for those of you who can stick around, we will continue to answer some of the questions. Um, I, I actually, I wanted to, um, I think I wanted to start out with, um, with a question for um, Dr. Ritterhouse, and in particular as it relates to bone biopsies, and how do you manage the, the issue of decalcification, and what, what's, your, what's your approach in, internally? Yeah, so bone biopsies are very challenging for us in the molecular laboratory. I think there's a few strategies. I think the, the most efficient one is to kind of have a policy for at least in-house specimens that you try to have. If you have a bone biopsy, you try to have some of it not go into regular decal. Almost all decals, even ones labeled gentle decals, will totally destroy nucleic acids. So really the only way is to treat them with EDTA. Problem is it takes longer and, and it kind of slows the workflow down, but it's really important, um, especially if you know there's molecular testing or may need to be molecular <coughs> testing to get that specimen into EDA, EDTA instead of regular decal. So it's helpful to notify the grossing room that's receiving the specimens, you know, this needs molecular testing, do not put in decal, um, but it's even better to have a systematic process where you routinely set aside tissue that won't go into rapid decal, because communication failures happen, unfortunately, all the time with these cases. Yeah, great, great, uh, great points. Um, and another question for you, Dr. Ritterhouse, and one that we struggle with internally, it's, it's justification of parallel testing. So, you know, can you, from a cost standpoint, rationalize the rapid strategy as well as the comprehensive testing strategy? Do you just bake all of those costs into your kind of operating overhead, or do you try to bill out for both tests? 
Yeah, that, that's a great question. I think that has to be kind of lab by lab and site dependent on kind of what the priorities for and again kind of communication with both pathology and our oncology colleagues. For us it was worth it um, to perhaps just kind of bake that into our operating costs. Um, some strategies could be if you identified a targetable alteration by a rapid test, you could cancel the more comprehensive profiling test depending on where it was in the processing. <clears throat> so I think there are other options that could be had, but I think um, in the era of immunotherapy, when our oncology colleagues are getting PD-L1 results you know, very rapidly, um, I think there's increasing pressure on us to get some of our molecular targeted results available quickly. And so for us, it, it was kind of worth it to do both strategies at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, great points. Uh, Dr. Yana, um, can you maybe just delve a little bit more into the primary resistance question? We, we do have a question about whether there's other explanations for why people may not respond um, up front to uh, EGFR TKIs. Yeah, uh, it, in the um, earlier generation inhibitors, you sometimes had primary MET amplification and primary EGFR T790M, the resistance mutation. So there were a few explanations. So some of the things you find as acquired mechanisms sort of preexisted, and hence the reason uh, uh, they were resistant. It hasn't really been extensively studied in the osimertinib uh, world, or partly because it's so rare, but MET amplification is certainly one. But one could assume that there could be other alterations, or for some reason you have the mutation at the genetic level, but the tumor is not expressing the EGFR or something like that, but it hasn't really been extensively studied. Yeah, and there was actually a kind of a corollary question. We, we know that we see diminished expression of the mutant protein in the small cell carcinomas, and I think that's sort of an important point for people to recognize. Um, what about the squamous cancers? When there's a squamous transformation, do we, do we know if that protein expression drops at the cell surface? I don't know that it's been extensively studied either. Uh, typically, we turn to histology-based treatments or chemotherapies or other things that are used to treat squamous cell cancers in those instances. Okay. And then we had a couple of questions really, I think, about um, challenges around delivery of care in low-resource settings, as well as uh, some data somebody very astutely pointed out from the flat iron data that went up on the screen very early on, that there's evidence that um, uh, African-American patients with lung cancer actually have a lower rate of testing for EGFR and, and next generation sequencing in general. So I guess it's really it's sort of a two-part question. I think from a pathology standpoint or from a clinician standpoint, um, h- how do we ensure that broader um, community is getting access to the testing um, and, and I guess expanding that beyond just the United States to countries where um, you know, not all of the same resources may be available? Yeah, Any I comments, mean, Dr. Ritterhouse? Yeah, I mean, I think this is, um, you know, access to, to care and starts with, you know, proper diagnostics to start off with. Um, and I think it's really challenging, especially when we're recommending um, comprehensive NGS panels that require significant amounts of resources and technical expertise. That's why I think some of the options, you know, some of the targets that we look for, immunohistochemistry, you know, ALK and ROS can be done by IHC. Those are more amenable, I think, to some lower resource settings. Um, there's newer kind of rapid-based tests that require very limited technical knowledge. They're kind of end-to-end solutions, and they produce a report and don't require a lot of um, hands-on technical expertise. But, of course, they still have um, costs associated with them. So I do think it's a challenging area and something that we should figure out how to best um, get the biomarker testing done in these settings. And, and maybe I'll just comment. I mean, for, for many places, my own included, molecular testing is... Uh, the oncologist has to order the molecular testing. So I think you have to educate uh, the clinicians on the importance of the need for molecular testing. If you go back to that pie chart that Dr. Scholl mentioned, there are seven P 
pieces of the pie where there are specific drugs with regulatory approval for lung cancer. So it's important to comprehensively genotype people's cancers because it impacts their care. This activity is accredited by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash KPW860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and Takeda Oncology.